Okay, we are officially live. Um, for the people that are tuning in, we're going to start calling this Spark Sessions. We're also going to use the audio from these lives as a podcast, and we'll stream it through Anchor, which will make it the audio of these uh, available on all the podcast platforms that you'll come across. Today, we have Joe Devlin again. I'll let Joe introduce himself in a second. Um, and we also have Matt Baca, who um, heads up real estate for IKNK Brands, and I'll let him give him give his own intro here in a second as well. Joe, why don't we start off with your intro, and we'll go from there. Sure. Thanks, Ryan. Um, my name is Joe Devlin. My background is in public policy. I spent the last 20 years working in state and local government, um, as well as doing a number of political campaigns uh, prior to joining Joining IKNK, I was the chief of cannabis policy and enforcement for the city of Sacramento, where we led really the the, the state's um, municipal effort for developing local cannabis regulations. Thanks. We'll move on to you, Matt. I appreciate it. So I'm Matt Baca with IKNK. I, uh, I'm VP real estate along with uh, financial planning on the operations side. So my background, um, it's really in in finance it's it's business banking corporate uh finance and and really that role is is working with individual companies uh large scale small scale um just completely different capacity along um each route with them so that's kind of my background is is structuring uh structuring companies uh restructuring companies i should say um on the on the financial side along with forecasting um, profitability. So that's a, that's a quick clip for myself. Awesome. And for those of you who don't know, my name is Ryan Kokot. I'm general counsel and director of compliance for IKNK. Um, and for those of you that are tuning in for the first time, the, the lens we've been kind of viewing these conversations through is the, is the recent developments in terms of, uh, the recent ballot initiatives that have passed at the state level across the United States. So, I like to have these conversations, not only to have a discussion about policy, but also to kind of give practical tips to any entrepreneurs that might be turning in. And today we're going to talk about real estate, finance, banking, and whatever kind of comes from there, I guess. And Matt is our, uh, our resident real estate guy, as well as really the finance and uh, banking go-to within our company. So Matt, if you, um, let's pretend you're an entrepreneur, you live in a state that just legalized cannabis, what would be the first step you would take um, if you decided you wanted to open a business and you had to find real estate in your jurisdiction? So there, there's a couple components that will we'll go back to that. So what you wanna make sure is you have a kind of a full scope of actually operating a business before. Um, everybody thinks that running a business is gonna be um, a pretty easy thing, especially in the cannabis side. Um, so when you're looking at real estate and you're and you're looking to get going and you, you kind of want to tag onto the green rush and identifying properties, um, you should already have your forecast for at least an 18 month period for what you're expected on a gross revenue and a, and a net profit and what your margin should be. You want to make sure that your base rent uh, and any additional expenses are going to fit within that. So what we're finding is a lot of people that or what I find is a lot of people that go out and they they look for this real estate they um they're they're working with real estate agents or they're working on their own to locate properties uh they're they're checking the local local ordinances and the regulations 
and if they find a property that that meets the criteria as far as being the the correct dis distance away from um, sensitive use areas, whether it's a, a school or something that's dedicated for for child use, um, they think I should I should go after that regardless of the space. So what I would say is 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 first make sure that your your forecast is well within reason for for what you believe that your company is actually going to be generating. And um, I'm working from home today, so I do apologize for that. Um, so go ahead and, and make sure that um, that forecast and that rental um, rental capacity is going to be within your projections and then start moving forward. You're going to find that real estate right now is is priced a little bit high on the rental side and you're going to want to adjust whether you're purchasing or leasing. So uh, right now is is the, the first priority is to, to look into the ordinances, find the zoning, make sure that the property fits, but then also the the size of the business or the size of the real estate will actually fit the current need, whether it's a, a retail space, a manufacturing space, or a cultivation space. This is an ongoing theme too. And I, I think if you had to summarize it in a sentence is, you know, do your homework and make sure you know what you're getting yourself into before you just jump into a lease or buying a property. Um, it happens all too often. Joe and I were talking about this just in the context of looking into even the tax rates at the local level in the jurisdiction that you're looking to get into. And Joe, I'll kind of pass that question into, on to you because for those of you who don't know, Joe and Matt kind of work hand in hand. Um, Joe tackles new market development. So it's a, uh, you know, it's kind of a tag team between the two of them when we go to open new locations. So what would what would your first step be, Joe, when it comes to identifying real estate? <laughs> um, you know, I, I I think Matt provided a really good overview of it. Um, I was going to say don't. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I think overall, you just really need to understand really at a granular level what that ordinance means and and how it actually translates to kind of that actual like on the ground um and then you know the other thing that i've seen play out again and again is just um you know you got to understand and have real estate experts in your corner that understand not just the market but also have kind of those networks of relationships i mean because let's face it you know, often when these ordinances are crafted um, due to uh, buffer zones around sensitive uses, um, there's a, a vast majority of the property is often disqualified. And what you're left with is really a small pool of eligible properties. Um, so if you don't understand relationships and understand real estate, um, you're going to be at, at, a, at a real disadvantage when it comes to trying to procure some of these properties. And let, let me jump in with um, kind of what Joe was saying as far as uh, it'll it'll go back and forth. One one thing that you'll you'll notice um, is be familiar with the market. Make sure that the market will actually play into your brand and what you're trying to accomplish. Um, you know, real estate is difficult to find that whether it's in the um, in the green zone, um, whether it's allowable, but also you want to remember the capacity that you're going to be working at. And if you're, if you find a minimal 
um, a space that has minimal parking and it, and it just meets the requirements for a retail spot, you're going to need to go ahead and predict that your sales are going to have a decline unless you're pushing out delivery as well, because you can't turn enough individuals through there. So you're going to need to reforecast your future growth based on the capacity of that location. Um, I've, we've seen people take on 20,000 square foot spaces for retail, um, 10,000 square foot. And, you know, the, the, the front of the store is actually fairly small and you have a lot of dead space. Um, the way that the tax structure and everything is that that runs through um, the whole industry, you want to make sure that that space is operating at the best capacity as possible. So you want to make sure that every square foot is making you money. And that that way, if you're if you're not working with the real estate expert or, or somebody that can really um, drive you in that direction, um, make sure that it's making sense on paper. Don't be the first one to, to take a bite on something just because it's available. Um, you can put yourself in a in a tough situation because you you also want to make sure when you're finding that real estate. Um, Joe's been a great um, Joe's been a great person to rely on for the information on this is when the actual application process starts and you have to go through whether they call it a land use permit or CUP, you have a leadway in where you could possibly be paying, be paying rent. Um, you could be paying kind of a, a security hold fee on an LOI throughout that period. So remember, you could have something where once you find a property, you're gonna want enough, you're gonna need to have enough cash to service about 18 months uh, of rent plus miscellaneous expenses before you could actually go live. So just because you find the property, you come in, you have your security deposit X amount of months um, uh, down for, for the month's rent that they want in advance, um, make sure that you prepare for worst case scenario because you don't want to go halfway through an application process um, if you're awarded and you're still going through the, the last leg of it and come up short and then, and then you can't fulfill the rest of your, uh, your obligation on that. Right. And to add color to what Matt just said, when you go to get licensed at the local level, um, at least in California, it's common that, you know, you have a business license application, which is saying, is my business, you know, meeting the requirements in this jurisdiction to operate to get a business license. But at the same time, there's usually a permit that you have to get that authorizes the land or the building that you're in to conduct commercial cannabis activity that is separate from and apart from the specifics of your business. But to backtrack a little bit, Matt, when you say you should be forecasting, um, what do you mean by forecasting exactly? You're muted, Matt. That always makes it easier. So <laughs> if, if you're forecasting out, it's, it's gonna just really, you should, you know, as I mentioned, you should be forecasting out um, really a, a performer projection for for what your company is gonna be performing at over the next, I would say 24 to 36 months, given the first 12 months, you'll actually be going through an application process. So you're gonna need capital and you're gonna have expenses prior to actually going live. So you wanna make sure you have a, a built-in cushion to debt service, the obligations that you're gonna have for the first 12 to 18 months before you actually start turning revenue and possibly turning a profit. Um, so that when I'm, when I'm saying forecasting, uh, it's really going out to projections, which, um, a lot of, well, part of the, I, I don't know how it is in every state, but you know, we're regularly requested to give 
24 to 36 month projections, financial projections, um, just a, a, a year ending statement for the first uh, 24 to 36 months. And so when you say projections, are you saying how much money is the business projecting to take in? To it's going to be a minus profit and loss. Okay. Yeah. That's just at the very the most base level. It's just a matter of what money are we going to make and what profit are we going to make on that money? Is that a fair way of saying it or? Correct. You, you're, you're going to want all the miscellaneous expenses, the legal, the, um, the, the taxes that you're going to be paying, uh, any filing fees, uh, any construction costs for the initial. So it'll be your CapEx on the initial side um, just to get it before your it's pre-revenue is what you're forecasting out. However, you will want once once you actually open the doors, you will want to have it forecasted out. Now, you should be basing that on uh, an, a number of things. How many licenses are going to be permitted? Um, what the vicinity is that you're you're next to in competition. So just because you open the door, it doesn't mean you're going to be turning 2000 people a day. You should be looking at population density. There's there's a number of factors that'll dictate what a retail store is able to do. And and sometimes some markets might not make sense if um, if if there's too much saturation, um, not if if the long the long haul is just to uh, to retire off of it. Joe, yeah, feel free to add anything to what we were just going through in terms of the projections, but I also have come to a specific question because I know you're doing a lot of uh, local permitting for us right now. What, I mean, can you give us like a breakdown of like the costs people should expect in the permitting process and maybe an overview of the permitting process itself um, so that someone could have some idea of, of maybe some of the, the costs that need to be added into this projection that Matt's referring to or forecast. Well, every city is, is, is certainly going to be, you know, different and every state is going to be a little bit different. Um, I think underscoring what Matt said about the lead time on these and budgeting for those, I don't think that that can be emphasized enough. Um, you know, if you're paying, uh, you know, rent on a property, uh, during the application period, you need to have a clear understanding of how long that application period is and how long it can be, right? So we've seen time and time again, those application periods get dragged out. We've even seen lawsuits filed that extend uh, that application um, uh, period or at least the um, it reaching a conclusion um, for, for months and months. Um, so, you know, each one is going to be very specific, um, but really the lead time, I think, on that application period is, um, is is what folks really need to spend kind of drilling down into and really kind of assessing how much the how much is that really going to cost you to even put in that application and, and to the point where you get an answer of, of yes or no. Um, in certain cases, depending on how much, you know, rent you might be paying and the cost of the application, you could be into a project for, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars, you know, before you get an answer of yes or no. I, you know, we can kind of segue into putting ourselves in the hypothetical situation of an entrepreneur that has found a property and is now negotiating a lease. And I think that's a good segue because the point I'll make in all of this, and it's kind of encapsulates everything that has been said to this point, you need to, like Joe said, look at what the process looks like in your local and state jurisdiction 
and factor that into your lease negotiations for at least abated or you know a, a smaller amount of rent for that period of time if not free rent because um as joe said once again things like lawsuits and other factors can delay licensing processes even longer than you anticipated so i would really encourage people on the the tenant side to really push for some level of reduced rent if not free rent until if and until you get licensed and along with that and i say if and until um to have an out you know if it, if for whatever reason you're not able to get licensed um and out of the lease so matt do you have something to add to that yeah i was um when we're talking about lease negotiations i know the the one thing that you want to want to make sure that you know up front um not everybody um you're not going to be able to access preliminary title reports or anything on the on the back end to see that if properties are encumbered so you you might end up getting a conversation going with a landlord um, or a property owner and when you're discussing with them uh leasing the property or doing any any type of um anything at that location and if it is encumbered by and when i say encumbered they they are carrying a mortgage on that property and and it's through a larger institution um one that does not allow for uh lending to anybody that has any affiliation with cannabis whether that be a tenant or their business themselves um you, you could get pretty deep in on the application process and be leasing a property um, from a landlord and before you actually go live um they their banker could do um you know they if they're providing annual financials on on for that entity that holds the property or their their annual rent roll uh new leases that could be a flag so make sure up front um, because what will end up happening is they'll either that, well there's a couple things that would happen but the easiest thing is they'll say okay you need to no longer have that business there. You cannot lease to a cannabis company. So either they are going to leave or you have X amount of time period to move your, your loan to another institution and taking it off their books and getting it into another institution um, and finding one that will accept it uh, is, is challenging. So you're actually going to, to mitigate risk, you're, you're wanting to look for properties that are unencumbered, things that do not have any type of liens from, a mortgage holder that does not allow cannabis use on the uh, premises. How do you go about finding out if something is encumbered or not? Is it a matter of just asking the landlord or is there a way yeah. to do that on your own? So, so there's a, there's a couple ways. Uh, if you are working with real estate agents, uh, they do have a way of, of pulling certain property profiles on their, that on systems that they have. Um, so that that is a benefit when you're working with agents. Um, they can pull that and they can see action on the property. Um, and before I would go into an agreement, though, always make sure that that property is free and clear and that that's going to be, you know, having the conversation, having it documented with the landlord, um, because you, you don't want an eviction happening where you're where you're booted uh, last minute because the bank says can't have that here. And if you do end up finding out that a property is encumbered, is that something you build into the lease or is that something, is that a property that you walk away from if the, if the landlord doesn't, you know, want to give you any assurance that you're not going to be booted if the bank um, comes knocking? 
So, what I mean, now there are institutions that will allow it. Um, they will allow you to uh, lease to somebody in the in the cannabis industry. You know, you're you're looking more at uh, smaller credit unions, um, not large institutions. However, I'm I'm sure there's a lot of large institutions that are eyeballing the industry now and kind of seeing what happens. Um, my my background was I was the one collecting rent rolls and annual financials and underwriting a lot of this stuff. Um, so I've I've flagged a couple things before. Um, in the past, and that was when it was just coming around. So, you know, I, I haven't been in banking for, for a few years now. So um, I, I have a feeling the temperature is gonna be changing, and especially as, as everything is changing in the current climate, um, that it, it might not be perceived as something that the bank can't hold the mortgage on. But if, if, you, if you wanna take a risk, you can. If, uh, if you wanna have a safe bet, um, maybe, maybe something that you find out and work something out with the landlord. Um, as far as, you know, you, you clear the debt, if it's a small one, sometimes if it's, if it's a large amount of debt, you, you just have to, you know, walk away. So what's your take on, um, just banking in terms of, you know, where we're at right now? And I don't know if we really need to get into a timeline necessarily, but what do you, how do you see the next year playing out at all, you know, if at all, I should say, in terms of banking reform and cannabis? Well, I, I think it's it's going to be slow and incremental, you know, up until we hit really that that real tipping point on the banking side. Um, we've had legalization, you know, continue to march forward at the state level. Um, and I think we're going to continue to see more and more banks come on and start to bake cannabis. Um, but those larger financial institutions realistically aren't going to participate in the space until, until it's legalized and decriminalized at the federal level. Um, you know, so in, 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 until that happens, any property that has uh, a mortgage on it that is held by one of these large banks you know, is is not going to be interested in, in putting that property at risk. No, I, I agree, and I, I agree with you that I think it's going to be an ongoing issue. Um, and to keep with the theme of, uh, I guess, negotiating with a landlord, Matt, um, what types of information should a tenant use when they're negotiating uh, rent price or even rent reductions? Um, with a, a landlord, I mean, we've all heard, and quite frankly, I think we've experienced to some extent some, uh, uh, we'll call it unrealistic landlords in terms of price per square foot for leases and whatnot. So how do you go about yeah. negotiating to get that down to so, a reasonable amount? So everybody's going to have an, an unrealistic expectation of what their new reality is going to be, right? Um, because everybody hears um how much money cannabis companies are making um how much some of the some of the early ones went out paying rent price per square foot it, it's not realistic for a sustainable company to uh to run that way um you know one of one of the other things that i do is um i, I look and strategize at acquisitions so um you know i have a, a background with m a and with mergers and acquisitions. So, you know, you start doing business evaluations and you're, and you're evaluating strategy. So when you, when you start looking at financials across the board and, and one of the, the 
biggest things that stand out is the price per square foot people are paying for their actual use. It, it is it is fairly scary. Um, so what you what a, a good rule of thumb is if you're working with the landlord um, and moving forward with it, and, and you know it it's not always going to be yeah no problem. There is yeah no problem. I'm going to go ahead and lease to a cannabis company. It, it can take some work. So there, it's more than just one call unless it's somebody that already has a price point in their mind. And if they have a price point in their mind, sometimes it's hard to overturn that. So what you have to consider is the state of the property that, that, it, that it currently is in. If you're looking at something that's dilapidated and you're going to have to put a million dollars into that building, um, there, there should be some, some rent relief on that because you're improving the property. Um, so when we look at it, you talk about, you know, how much you're, you're going to be investing into the property. If it is a multi-tenant building and they, and they have, let's say it's a, a retail center and they have other tenants, you know, if there's, if there's any, any shop around, um, it can actually benefit surrounding stores, whether it's um, a place with food or it's a, it's a gas station or, or something like that. Um, anything that's a, that's, that's a quick grab while they're already there shopping for something at a at a retail cannabis store they can they can run in grab it you you know you're benefiting other tenants there so that that's one discussion that you can have um how much that you're investing into the property like i already said whether it's on your ti's or um or or just really really the longevity of it um and your your annual rent increases there's there's different factors that you can negotiate with the the one the one concern that I have with that is some people that you talk to it it's going to be whoever the highest bidder is um, and what I always look at is would you rather have a long term tenant actually Ryan we've had this conversation before would you rather have a long term tenant or just a flash in the pan um, you know there's uh, Joe and I have have had multiple conversations um, with municipalities. And, and landlords together when we're when we're talking about zoning and, and the price per square foot and and what it comes down to is you could have somebody that doesn't actually get a um, that doesn't actually get granted a license and they're paying a, a ton up front um, and then it just kind of goes away rather than kind of opening up for um, just doing LOIs like I always try to to walk in and and do a little bit more on the LOI side. Um, and that just letter of intent, you know, don't, don't burden yourself with the lease right out of the gate, see what you can do. You know, you, you have to be able to survive a little bit during the application process. So that's part of the negotiation as well as, you know, how long can you go without getting into a, uh, into a lease, but also you, you know, you get a license, you could be suffocated by the expenses within six months. And then that property is not worth anything in the, in the, the landlords and same position as they were before. So it's it's easier to set realistic expectations to have long-term relationships um, than, than to pay as much as you can upfront and monthly just to satisfy what the landlord needs. Well, that's a really, I think, a good lesson for anybody that's out there at, that is a current landlord or is thinking about becoming one. I mean, you have two choices pretty much when it comes to being a landlord. As Matt said, you can go for the highest sticker price, or you can, uh, the second option, which I think is a better option is, you know, 
thoroughly vet any tenant or potential tenant that's going to rent your property. And when I say vet, I mean, look into their business, their experience, because as Matt said, I mean, a tenant does you no good if they're not able to pay rent. So you're better off as a landlord sacrificing that top line number and having a lower number and having someone that is actually going to be in that property for the term of a lease, as opposed to someone where it's a quick hit, you get a higher rent amount for a year, and then you're fighting them tooth and nail from there on. So that's something to think about as a landlord, um, in addition to you know what Matt mentioned when it came to tenants. Did you have something to add, Matt? Yeah, um, one thing on um, when we're when we're looking at this and, and you're looking at that price that you pay per month, um, some people are going to look at it as, as far as the, the cap rate or really what the return is on the property um, based on the rental agreement or or the lease structure. So, you know, if they're if they're looking to, um, you know, lease to a cannabis business and then sell shortly after, they're going to be looking at you know, the improvements. So you're going to go ahead and get a, um, as completed value or the, the current value, but then they're going to be valuing that lease. Now that lease for ongoing for what you're going to be paying at rent, that cap rate is not always going to be matching what's in the market. And that actually in an appraisal will can be and should be evaluated and brought down to what um, kind of what an average is. You're gonna you're gonna have this anomaly where you're you're getting a a 20% cap rate. So you're gonna get a return in in five years on your um, on the purchase of the building just based on the rent. However, if the cap rate um, in the market is running only six percent, that that 20% cap is is not realistic. Right, you know, depending on the on the lease and the structure and the the value, because it might only be a, a two year lease, right? Who knows if they're going to actually renew or they can solidify going through the whole the whole process? Because if they leave, um, that license is is tethered to them, so it, it's not like another cannabis company can can come right back in and add value without going through the whole process with the town or the city. Um, to go ahead and pick up and be another cannabis operator at that location. So if you're looking at a high cap rate, it you know it it looks good initially, but it, it will get recognized and and brought down um, and and more so averaged out with the surrounding market on any type of property evaluation. A really really common issue that we've seen, um, or actually not even I've I've heard about more so than anything. Um, we've seen directly is, is landlords asking for ownership um, as part of the rental, you know, payment. Joe, I mean, I, I anticipate that we have people watching or that will watch this um, that are in states that are, are new to cannabis in terms of newly legalized. What are some big picture, I guess, compliance considerations both landlords and tenants should be thinking about uh, when it comes to um, landlords taking ownership as part of their rental payment? Well, uh, I think the biggest factor uh, is, you know, once a landlord becomes an owner, that dramatically changes that, that relationship that that property owner um, has with the federal government. They are now uh, assuming that liability 
that the, the, the cannabis business operator has, and it's now attached to a fixed physical piece of property. Um, so until we have federal legalization, that's an additional uh, uh, exposure, if you will, that that landlord is going to have um, once they seek um, uh, uh, an ownership interest in, 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 that, in, in, that, in that business. I think that's probably the, the biggest one. It's certainly not uncommon. Um, you know, we say we, we don't um, pursue uh, those type of arrangements at, at IKNK, but we certainly have been um, uh, at, at least offered uh, a number of different scenarios in, in various cities. Um, and those arrangements aren't necessarily, um, they're not right for our structure, but that doesn't mean it doesn't work for other people's. But, you know, I think in general, um, you always got to be careful of who you're kind of, you know, doing business with and, and, and partnering with um, because, you know, if you're bringing on a landlord as a partner, they're holding, um, you know, they're holding a lot of cards and depending on the structure of that lease uh, and how well it's written, uh, you could be empowering your landlord slash business partner to uh, a degree um, much greater than you think. Yeah. And I, you know, to take it a step further, um, we talked about due diligence on the landlord's part, just in making sure that, you know, there's some degree of certainty that this, the tenant is going to be able to pay, but it extends beyond that almost into the criminal realm as well, especially if you're taking ownership, you better damn well be sure that that operator is not only going to be paying their rent, but they're, that they're going to be operating compliantly and legally. Cause as Joe alluded to, you can run into some asset forfeiture issues you know, in terms of your property being seized, um, if that tenant, in fact, does do something illegally um, and gets in trouble with the law, be it the federal government or the state government. Um, and, you know, we don't have to go too deep into the weeds on this call in terms of asset forfeiture. But the point I will make is that, you know, a, a defense on the landlord part in an asset forfeiture cause of action typically is that they were they didn't know what was going on, but distinguish having a defense from the time and money and resources you're going to have to um, expend to put that defense up. To put it another way, you can have the best defense in the world, but it doesn't mean that you're not going to spend hours upon hours and thousands upon thousands of dollars um, to you know make it work out for you in court, to make a long story short. so. Um, let's kind of we kind of touched upon banking earlier in terms of just where we think reform is headed and Matt you touched upon it a little bit but how does banking um, as it stands today or financing in general work for a cannabis business how or can I guess the first question is, is can a business today leverage traditional financing and if not um, how do you see that shaking out in the future um so traditional financing in the sense of using a a traditional lender um no um and there's you know there's there's a couple reasons for that and um un until federal legalization rolls around i i don't see anybody touching that uh there there could be some credit unions that are that are extending um credit on real estate that that i'm not aware of um but as of right now you wouldn't actually be looking at a traditional finance structure right so 
if you're doing a, a general real estate loan and you're, you're acquiring real estate, you're generally going to have, um, whether it's, it's going to be a, a, a 525, so a five-year term, 25-year amortization, depending on the property use. Um, it, it could be um, a, a five-year term with a 15-year amortization. So in that amortization, it's just it's compressing your, your payment structure, right? So I don't see that happening, and, and I've had a, a few calls and um, discussed with a, a couple of different people on kind of forecasting out for that. Right now, the best bet, um, if you're looking at lending in the cannabis space, um, it, it all needs to go back to um, operation specific. So if you're going to be looking at doing a cultivation, um, most likely you're going to be looking at equipment financing and you're going to be looking at real estate financing. Uh, you can work with brokers and do some hard money lending on that. Uh, your your broker fee is going to be elevated. Your what does that mean? What does hard money lending mean? Um, just think of you know it, it's not a conventional. So you're you're going to have a, a a pool of funds, right? So just just imagine you know you you have some investor funds or um, some individuals, high net worth individuals that will pool funds. And you'll have a broker that can source those. So it's not a traditional deal. However, um, deals like that, you know, it's it's high risk for anybody that has their their funds pooled in an account that's going to be dispersed to to leverage to buy real estate. So with risk, they are going to have an increased interest rate, um, upfront fees, anything um, their loan to value. So how much that they're going to lend against real estate is going to be very different. Than what you're going to find on in the traditional realm. So, if you're if you're using hard money lending um, and and going through a broker, which which there are sources to do that, and there are um, people out there, but you're going to be paying um, well into the double digits on on your interest rate. Some of those are structured as a as a 12 month interest only, almost as a a bridge loan. And before you ask uh, Ryan, a bridge loan is is what people will get while they're satisfying or um, securing long-term debt capital. So in the, it's a, it's an interim loan. So if you're transitioning over to something or you're waiting for your full lending to come through, you'll have a intermediary loan or, or a inter loan, uh, interim loan, bridge loan, whatever you want to call it. Uh, those are short-term. Generally, they're going to be interest only. They're going to have an upfront fee. And uh, you, the fee is you're going to be paying points on it, and that's going to actually um, allow you a six to twelve month period, depending on who you're who you're going with. Um, and there are some hard money lenders who will let you do that, while either you you pay them off in full, or you find somebody who will do a longer term loan with you. So um, that's that's what I've been finding is that's a little bit more. Um, in the realm out there is you're going to have a you're going to have a, a 12 month call on your on your lending until you get something um, a little bit more long term. But on those long term deals, uh, when I say long term, you're you're still looking at you know 24 to 36 months with the balloon payment at the end of it. Um, they're they're compressed. You have um, so your term is compressed. So your your um, your payment is is rather high. Um, you're you're still coming in with about 50% loan to value, and when I say 50% loan to value, it's the actual value of 
whether it's the, well, it's going to be the asset. So whether it's the real estate or the equipment that you're acquiring, a lot of them say, okay, you know, it's, it's valued at 4 million. You need to come in with 2 million plus fees. Um, there are some who will span it and go 50 to 65%. But I would say rule of thumb is, is think that you're coming in with 50% down and then you're going to have a lending relationship that's going to last, you know, 12 to 24 months. And then either it's going to be all due, uh, paid in full at the end of that term, or it's going to be compressed and you're going to have a very large amount that you're paying each month. Um, so that, that's kind of the lending options that you see now. Um, you know, there, there are, I've seen it where I've had, um, companies just will shoot me an email and ask in regards to, um, revolving lines of credit. So, you know, they're, they're wanting to go ahead and, and pick up inventory. They need a line of credit while they're while they're satisfying their accounts payables and they're they're getting their um, their accounts receivables all caught up. Um, the the issue with that is um, think of it from a uh, from a retail side. If you are in the cannabis industry, you're you're a cash business. You're like a restaurant. Restaurants do not do lines of credit. Um, there there's no need for that. And the reason for that is because if you're if you're holding your inventory for 30 days, uh, it's going bad. So in cannabis, you need to be having a 30 day turn cycle. And that's where if you're looking for a line of credit to satisfy operations on a monthly basis um, from a retail shop, that's not the right capacity um, for a credit facility to have there. Um, uh, a line of credit would it, it's it's for you know, you're, you're bridging a gap between 60 and 90 day payments. So that could be something more so on the manufacturer. So you could, if you're manufacturing, maybe you're doing, um, you need a line of credit there or something on cultivation. And it's just getting you through your normal business cycle, whether it's, um, whether on the manufacturer, you're waiting for a product to come in to go ahead and, um, whatever product you're going to, if you're doing extraction, maybe you're waiting for uh, bulk or biomass or something to come in and you're, you're creating oils. Well, you might have a 30 to 60 day lag before you're, you're getting product out. Or if you're, uh, if you're a cultivator and you have a turn cycle and you're waiting for the next crop out and it's a, you know, you got 60 days and you need to go ahead and leverage up a credit facility to satisfy business operations that's where you'd look at having a, a line of credit. So line of credits in our industry, they're, you know, they're generally going to be collateralized with some kind of asset, whether it's going to be equipment or real estate. So um, all in all, they, there are credit facilities out there. Um, it's not going to be on the traditional side. It's going to be with more of the hard money. You're going to be paying more points up front. You're going to have a higher interest rate and you're going to have a shorter term. Now, not to go on too much of a tangent on that, but when this goes federal, federally legal, um, it's not like you're going to be or my understanding and what I would think is you're not going to be able to walk into any large institution, uh, whether it's just uh, a regional or a national um, lending institution and say, hey, I need a real estate loan. I'm, I'm buying this property for cannabis use or I'm uh, buying this equipment. You know, you're going to need a track record of, of strong financials um, because it's going to be new for everybody. They're going to be looking at this as a brand new industry. They're going to be learning how to underwrite it. They're going to be looking at the credit risk. They're going to be learning how to. Um, they're going to be learning how to categorize it based on the risk, uh, the performance. So, 
if you're just starting out and it's going to be your first cultivation, your first retail, um, your your first manufacturing facility, you know, in, in the traditional world, if you were uh, a regular business, you're going to be looking at the SBA route. Um, you're you're going to be doing some startup financing. Um, but on the traditional side, you're going to need about two years of of cash flow, two years of, of full operations, and you need to be able to support the debt load that you're going to be taking on. So it, it's not going to be the hard money lending that you see now, which it's more of an asset based where they're not necessarily worried about your financials, but the value of the asset that they're leveraging. So keep that in mind. It's still going to be uh, about a year or so, I, I believe, before strong lending goes live after federal legalization. Joe, do you have anything to add on this end? Uh, you know, I was just kind of nod my head that uh, that's interesting to think that um, that that even after federal legalization, um, that traditional lending and, and kind of like the big banks getting in, into this still could be a little bit of a slow walk. But um, you know, I. Like, you know, I guess that kind of really makes sense as you start to think about kind of like the who's been operating in the space and who's going to be wanting loans and what their track record is and what do they have as collateral. Um, yeah. So uh, big, you know, traditional lending in this could could really be could really be. And I, I think one of those still. dictating factors, I know us three have talked about uh, 280E numerous times you know the, the biggest struggle that you're going to find with lending is you're you you're not able to take advantage of normal tax write-offs right um i mean there there's companies that are getting so hard with getting hit so hard with 280e if that wasn't in place you know you they could be profitable they could be lendable um but it, it's that whole tra tax structure that we're going through which is you know, I, I do have concern for um, just uh, this industry with that. And and I know we've we've talked about it numerous times, but uh, if I was underwriting something, there's there's nothing that I could add back in. There's no um, I mean, it, it's going to be pretty, pretty. Um, this is your bottom line and this is what it is. And there's you know, you can't mitigate a lot of things. On this. What do you mean by yeah. underwriting that? So, Can you clarify what you mean by that? So, so from a lender's position, um, you're you know I you take in the, the company's financials. You're looking at um, you know corporate history, the last couple years of financial performance based on you know tax returns, and also uh, looking at individual tax returns depending on the lender. Um, and what you're doing is you're looking at you know net profit, and on a on a normal on a normal underwriting platform, there's there's things that you're adding back and you're almost running like an EBITDA. So your 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 earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, amortization. Um, you don't get those add backs um, with the with the 280E structure, right? Um, where I'm looking at financials or a lender would be looking at financials and saying, okay, you're looking on taking a two million dollar mortgage on and you know it's amortized over 50 or it's over uh 25 years at x amount rate you're paying you know seventeen thousand dollars a month mortgage can your company support that and 
the way that it's structured now is it'll be it'll be interesting to see how many are profitable enough to take on additional lending. So underwriting is and from like a thousand. It's foot a banker view. banker's perspective. Um, it's a it's a risk and a financial analysis of a company. So it's like the process I go through to determine if someone should qualify for a loan. Correct. Got it. So Matt, do you, you know, kind of regardless of kind of what the feds may kind of do kind of poking around the edges, you don't think that those kind of real financial conversations really began until there's clear 280E uh, uh, re reform, you know, whether it comes from descheduling, but, but the cannabis industry needs to be free and clear of 280E before those before those real lending and banking conversations take place? I think it, I think it can still be in place. What I think is, is you're going to take an audience of this many people or uh, this many uh, entities, and you're going to compress it to this many that are actually profitable and, and lendable. Um, and the, the issue with this is everybody that's struggling under 280E, you're eliminating them from the equation to actually grow their business. You know, you, you take on lending to grow into the space. I, I think it just it limits it. Um, so it they should it would still be entertained. It would just be um, it would limit those who are able to actually get lending. In, in, in my opinion. Yeah. What do you? I mean, you know, if you get into legal trouble, you go to a lawyer. You need someone to do your taxes. You go to an accountant or CPA. I mean, I, I know you can go to a bank to get a loan, but I mean, who do you go to? Let's say you're a small business. You don't have the resources to have a mat on staff. Who do you go to? I mean, do you go to a CPA or you just go straight to the bank in terms of figuring this stuff out as far as how to go about financing a business, both in the climate that we're in right now and in the climate once you know things open up and traditional financing opens up as well for cannabis businesses? So um, there's there's a couple, you know, and, and I would say you, you got to kind of be careful in the market that you're in. Um, and I and I always go back to traditional business or traditional banking um, where, you know, if, if you're looking at getting something going, um, generally you're going to have a government program that that you can go down to a local center. Usually they're at a university or, or somewhere and they can actually help you get you know if it, it, it could be you know if it's government lending and, it, and it's going through the sba program you're going to have a, a cdc at different parts of the state and you know that's that would be if you're looking at getting let's say a, a trucking company or, or a manufacturing company going and, and you've been an operating manager for so long and now you want to go out on your own they'll help you lay out everything um, as far as business plan getting lending lining up um, things to look out for so they guide you through a process um, even writing a business plan on the cannabis side, it's a little different because it's also an industry that about 90% sure they haven't looked at. They, they might've had, um, they might have had individuals come in and ask for some help just on, on general dynamics of how to, how to create something. Um, but this is, this is a very different industry and it currently doesn't operate like a standard, um, like a standard industry. So 
you can go out and you can find cannabis consultants. You can you can find individuals that can help you on the on the financial side. You know, there, there's plenty of them out there. There's there's plenty that will act in the financial capacity, the real estate capacity, along with the government capacity. And and Joe and I have and also they'll have usually like a referral on the legal side. And uh, Joe and I have had these discussions before where you do have to be careful with who you're you're vesting your time in because your time is is valuable as well. Um, do your due diligence. Um, you know, you're, you're not going to be able to ask somebody who's consulting on that. Um, well, go ahead and show me your top 10 clients or whatever, or who, who have performed so well under, under you. Did you, did you help consult for XYZ cannabis company? And, and you know, they, you know, there's, there's disclosures and, and privacy that they're not going to be able to share that with you. So um, that's kind of a tough one. Um, you're going to want to make sure that they're represented well in the community um, or the, the city and the state that you're you're looking to get into. Um, but but there are some that will charge exponential amount of fees up front um, and, and things don't always pan out. And you, you think things are lining up very well and, you know, you, maybe you don't get the license maybe you don't get the real estate. So you, you just need to be cautious with that because you could be doing some exclusivity agreement where you can't work with anybody else um but there's no performance so you want to make sure that they you know that that they have been performing that they you know that you feel comfortable with them for those of you listening in who are thinking i'm having matt define things just to help the listeners it's actually it's as, it's as much for me as it is for you just as a heads up and i I think it's actually kind of a good spot to end and I because I think it circles back to one of the initial points that was made, which was you got to do your homework. And if you, you know, listening to someone like Matt who really knows this stuff, you begin to realize how much, you know, goes into this in terms of getting into real estate, uh, financing a business and getting off the ground and up and running. So I hope, um, you know, that people really do their due diligence. Don't just stick your head in the ground and hope it works out. You got to really crunch the numbers and know what you're getting yourself into. Um, I, I think the excitement of a new state legalizing can kind of overshadow some of the practicality of starting a business at certain points in time. And I get it. I mean, I, I think everybody should be excited, but you want to be open five years from now. Um, so you need to do your homework. I'll, uh, I'll turn it over to you guys for any closing comments or even there's any other topics you guys want to cover. I'm around. I'm, uh, I'm good on my side. I, I think I, I did more than a mouthful. So um, for anybody listening and anybody that watches us later, um, shoot over more questions to Ryan. I'd be more than happy to answer anything uh, down the road or hop back on with Joe and Ryan. It was, uh, I appreciate you guys letting me hop on and this was awesome. Thank you. Sure. Yep. No, uh, nothing more for me. Do your due diligence and, uh, and keep doing your due diligence. All right. Thanks everybody for tuning in. We'll see you next Friday at one 30. Thank you.